And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on December 16th, 2022. Ethan Olson is the owner of Walburn Run Nursery located in Brockway, Pennsylvania. His main plant focus at his nursery is on fruit and nut trees, along with buried shrubs and edible herbaceous plants. Presently, Ethan spends the majority of time growing and collecting the American chestnut, Castanea dentata. His mission is the preservation of a diverse chestnut germplasm in hopes of getting this once great species back into the environment as a productive component to the Northeastern forest ecosystem. Ethan has a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture from Temple University and is an avid outdoorsman. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Ethan. We're delighted that you could be with us today. I'm glad to be here. And we're going to jump right in, as Hal would always say, right, Hal? Yes, we Uh, can. Jump right in. And ask you about your background and and how you wound up growing the American chestnut, Castanea dentata. Uh, Well, it began probably about 10 years ago when I first got interested in them. I came across an article um, and it was about the Appalachians and the, you know, the vast history of it and how that was a very important species for the area, especially in poor communities. I mean, I'd, I'd never seen one and I did a lot of hiking in the area and I was always looking for them. And it wasn't until about six or seven years ago, I actually found a stand. There's some down in Cook's Forest. That's a old growth forest in the area here. Um, that's where I first saw some there. And the more I hiked, the more I learned where to look for them. And I find them more and more each year. They're gone. A lot of times there's a very stony ridge or outcropping. Um, that's where I've come across most of those. And it, it just drew me in because like nobody knows what it is. And I live in where, the area where they were predominant. And most people don't even know what that is anymore. So I really got interested in that, did more research, and now I'm hooked. <laughs> How far are you from uh, Cook's Forest? That's uh, about 35-minute drive. I oh go there quite frequently okay. in the summertime. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. 
Oh, well, I'm so tempted to ask you about ginseng, but I'm going to stay on top. Of you. <laughs> That's here too. <laughs> oh, there's um, always somebody in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ethan, I just wanted to ask you, you, you live in upstate Pennsylvania, Jefferson County, and how has the land influenced where you live? You know, having proximity to Cook Forest is a tremendous resource. Uh, which has the last remnants of virgin woodland, as I understand it. I actually had a chance to visit it this summer. Yeah, I'm just wondering how the land living up there, breathing it in, has influenced what you do or continues to influence what you do. Uh, I think a lot of that influence comes from like my family living here and growing up here um, and the way it's changed over the centuries. Um, used to be a big coal and timber. And that has vastly changed. Now it's mostly factory work as most of the timbering kind of died down and the coal was, there's very few mines left that I know of um, in the area. So that definitely negatively impacted the incomes of the families in the area. So my family growing up, a lot of times they used to get what they could have off of the land and it's community to community here. A lot of people share stuff, and that definitely has affected how I've grown up. And it's it's tied to the area. It's not very it's not a very rich area historically, and it still is not to this day. So there's a lot of people that still take some influence from the surrounding environment, collect what they can, stuff like that. It has affected that. I got you. And you're obviously really found your passion and your love with this American chestnut, and uh, yeah. we've had some guests on in the past from the American Chestnut Foundation and things like that. I recall a couple times now where we get into the weeds with American Chestnut and I just feel this sense of optimism, you know, that so much of it is moving forward with research and rolling out varieties that are going to be resistant to the blight. Talk about how you found that passion and where you're going with it. The passion, it starts with, I like a lot of fruit, nut trees. So that's where I began with looking into stuff. And as I come across this species, um, the fact that it's so unique to the area and it grows so well back in its prime before the blight came through and wiped out majority of the stands. There's a lot of things I like about it. It's a beautiful tree. If you've ever seen the tree, it's a beautiful right. tree. So as soon as I saw a fairly mature seed producing tree, I was just hooked on it. I could not look away. And I wanted to do everything I could to try to get it back into certain forest areas, kind of just observe it and kind of see what it does before making any major decisions. And I've seen some interesting things over years. Some trees that should not be growing, they are growing healthy, producing seeds, and they have active blight on them. So I've just observed these things over the years. It's kind of developed into, uh, I just collected as many sources as I could, and I'm growing right now, observing. I probably have five or six different states I've collected from. Many of them are from local areas also. So I'm growing a lot right now, preserving a large germplasm of these trees for future use, whether it is me that does it or if it's somebody else that comes in and collects the genetics and uses them from here. But there's there's a lot of unique things. The, the differences from area to area is also rather vast. I mean, you see mm. a lot of difference in the trees from one state to the other, from one part of PA to maybe 10 miles away. I'll find one different, different elevation. And there's different characteristics I've noticed from those and kind of how they react to their environment and the uh, blight infection at the same time. So the fruit and nuts is awesome. And I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm thinking back to such a, a rich history. Have you, and you mentioned the coal, coal has gone away. How is it working out with American chestnut being planted on the, on the reclamation sites where 
there was some mining and then filling and stuff like that. Are, are they getting some good results there? I've heard both ways. Um, it depends yeah. on which, which group you're looking at. Um, some groups will say that they've had good success. Others say they don't. I have not had good success on such disturbed sites. I've planted them because I got different regions of the property. Some are more disturbed than others. The problem with, with the strip mining, primarily what is around here, whenever they're planting on new sites, is if the soil column is so disrupted. I think it's a lack of mycorrhizae in the soil that is actually negatively impacting that particular species of doing well. I've yeah. seen white pine do much better on reclamation sites than chestnuts have. And even growing them on the property, I'll grow, I, I plant them all over the place. I got areas that are mature forests. I have open areas that are like a successionary forest for you know, 50-year-old trees with openings. And then I plant out an open field with silt loam soil that's maybe two to three feet deep down the valley here where you, before you even hit any kind of rock and stuff. They react very differently in certain areas, but the disturbed mine sites, I have not seen good success with, with many of those trees growing on those sites. I recall driving through upstate Pennsylvania several summers ago, uh, mid-late summer, and uh, was amazed at how the open areas around the farms, in, in, in other words, around uh, homes and the barns, have been planted with Chinese chestnut. Do you happen to know how that came to be? Did, did they make it available to farmers as kind of a substitute? I, I think what happened was a lot of people were trying to look for a substitute for that, and they wanted like a, a chestnut. And that was what was most widely available at the time yeah. for a lot of people in there on here. And they would just trade seeds. So once somebody got a mature tree, which 90% were Chinese, there's a very few that were Japanese. Yeah, they've traded those, and they would always plant them like on the edges of fields and stuff, just to have like a nut source. But they just don't have the apical dominance. They just do not, just don't do as well. Yeah, know, so open fields is about the only spot. One of the interesting things about chestnut, and you know, if you go back and read some of the the historical documentation about how chestnuts were used, it was such a heavy producer that people, every, everybody, it was chestnut picking time. It was, everybody yeah. went out. It wasn't just one type of people or this group of people or that group of people. It was everybody across the Northeastern part of the United States that had their actual chestnut baskets that were made for yeah. chestnuts. And they, they would bring them home. Now, if you have a disease that comes in and wipes out a tree and people are relying on that as a food source, they have to look for something else, whether it's going to be hickory, whether it's using uh, acorns maybe as a, as a different source, but finding out that there might be another tree that could provide something that's similar, I would think that people yeah. would jump on it. And that was brought into our country because of that very reason. The picking of chestnuts, they were trying to replace it with the Chinese chestnut because so many people went hungry because there wasn't enough chestnut fruits for people to eat, especially in the backcountry. Yeah, that a lot of a lot of times, small communities and poor areas, uh, they would collect that and sell that in bigger cities. The extra they had, and that would be like paying for their property tax for food for the, the winter. And that was a huge income for people that time of year. So that's exactly right. Like you said, they reached for the closest thing they could find, and that was the Chinese chestnut at the time. It's also very much like when our elm disappeared, they brought in the Chinese elm, they brought in the Zelkova, um, they brought yeah. in they brought in plants that they were hoping 
could fill that void, even though they didn't have the exact same structure, that they could at least have that connection of an elm tree with another elm. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that that's true of chestnuts. You'd think that hickory or some of the hickory species and some of our own walnuts would, would have sufficed, but I guess it didn't because it has a different well, taste altogether. Yeah, they're sweeter. The, the starch is different in them. I mean, they're entirely different structure. Right. And this, similar things are happening still, like with the butternut being wiped out, people bringing in heart nuts and stuff like that. There's continuously trying to find a replacement for what was once abundant and is now lost. So that repeats time and time again in history. Just as an aside, Ethan, uh, one of the Christmas traditions I have at, at the house is to go out and spend too much money on uh, chestnuts at the uh, gourmet grocery store, come home and roast them not do it right, and then throw out the whole batch uh, because they either uh, never opened or, yeah, they, they never opened properly. So I'm thinking you must have a fail-safe method for roasting chestnuts. I actually haven't done a lot of roasting, um, but, but from what I understand is the best way to do that is people do them in the oven at a lower temperature in a longer period of time. Okay. It gets you a better flavor profile. Um, and make sure you do cut the nut because if you don't, they can explode. <laughs> they will yes, build up the humidity, moisture, and pop. Yeah. Well, I have I have a batch in the refrigerator, and uh, I think I'm gonna once again follow down the path of the annual tradition and and see if I have any more success. On a more serious note, when will is it fair to ask when will the American chestnut and the hybrids and the engineered ones be available to the public? Uh, when will nurseries be selling it as liner stock and, and anything like that. Is that day ever going to happen? Uh, they keep moving the dates on that stuff. Last I heard, the uh, OXO gene, that's a wheat gene infused from the GMO, they're trying to get that released sometime in the next year or so. There's still some pushback from certain groups and getting genetically modified trees released into the forest, but I do believe they're getting close to approving that. And then that's going to go out to mainly people that are involved with you know, trying to reclaim the species and plant that already have existing pollen-producing trees because they want to have the ability to cross those with existing gene pools. So there's there's going to be limited release on that. It's going to be some time, I believe, before they're actually available for liners and like nurseries to start producing those trees. Okay, um, because they're limiting the amount that are actually going to be released to very limited groups to start off. But I, it, I believe it's going to happen with with. Uh, the back cross methods. And I think they're actually combining that with the OXO gene from the State University of New York, their program right. with the OXO genes. Yeah. Um, they're working together with American Chestnut Foundation now because their back cross method, they were finding flaws with trying to get purity of the American Chestnut genes in those. So they're kind of leaning more on the OXO gene line of that stuff and they're going to combine their processes. So uh, it, it is going to happen. It just takes time, a lot of time with stuff like that, trying to yeah. get it released. Well, I remember when the Dunstan came out, I had a friend who bought them for her property because she wanted to have chestnuts on her property. Um, and it was a beautiful tree. It was just stunning. And of course, there is a stand at the Morris Arboretum that is a group of hybrids back from the 1950s that are yeah. still going strong. And they are exemplary looking trees. If you know you want to see some amazing um, hybrids, you'd have to go on to the private side of Morris Arboretum, but they are amazing trees and uh, produce very heavily too. So I think the chestnut tree, it just brings back a lot of memories, at least from the Chinese chestnut standpoint, where we used to have them every Christmas. And of course, 
Yes, roasted them in the oven. That's what most people see when they look when they think of chestnuts. They think of the Chinese. When they, they hear American chestnut, they go right to that image because that's all they've ever seen. So right, and it's a smaller nut. It's not as big as as the Chinese chestnut. Yeah, yeah, they're smaller, but they're sweet. They're, they're different makeup entirely than the, the Chinese chestnuts. So the the flavor profile is different completely. And I have eaten some American. I just had to try it on good years that I have enough. I have tried them, and the difference is is you know it right away when you're eating them. There's a difference. Yeah. You can see why they were sought after. Well, I definitely have to get that on my bucket list. Is it fair to ask you for an opinion on planting with genetically modified trees into native woodlands? What's your opinion on that? Um, I I don't have a problem with it. The biggest pushback with people is they they view this as a way to push other genetically modified uh, plants forward like crops. Okay. There's a lot of people worried about that because they think this will open a doorway for other things like that to be pushed through. Um, I yeah. don't have a problem with American chestnut because I, I think that can be used similar things for other tree species we're losing currently. So I, I don't have a problem with it. But the, the biggest pushback, like I said, is they're worried about it opening a door to bringing in other things without as much regulatory control on those I see. from people I've spoken to. And that makes sense because, you know, a lot of people don't want anything that's Roundup ready. Yeah. In GMOs, that type of thing. You also grow chinkapin, I, I saw on your Facebook page. If you, if anybody's, you know, anybody that's listening, go to his Facebook page at, at Walburn Run Nursery and look on in his Facebook page. He has some really amazing photos of his seedlings growing and uh, I was really impressed with that, that those photos of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees. I always love propagation yeah. at the university. So where's the ready source for your chinkapin? And give us the Latin name, if you know it, so that our listeners know what it is. Uh, are you talking about the Allegheny chinkapin or the Ozark chinkapin? Because I have both. <laughs> well, you can give both names then. Okay. There you go. Uh, the Allegheny chinkapin is Castanea pamela. Um, that is a dwarf subspecies around here. It grows on the under under the canopy of larger trees. In the open, it'll might get about 15 foot tall, but uh, they have a single nut per burr, about the size of your pinky nail, which is readily accepted by a lot, like turkey and stuff like that, smaller wildlife. So that was crucial to those at the same time that the American chestnuts were producing feed that like bear, deer, and a lot of other animals like to eat as well. Um, another group that I have is Castanea ozarkensis. That's the Ozark chinkapin. Um, that one, side by side, probably the closest to the American chestnut. It was a fairly large tree. wasn't typically found this far north. It was more southeast here. But it was a predominant tree in those forest ecosystems. And they, it's, it also produces a single nut per burr. It's a smaller nut, but it was a heavy mass producer, which was key to a lot of the wildlife in the areas and the communities as well. That's interesting. And I, I saw your photo. So if you get a chance to go onto the site, you, you'll be able to see the chinkapin. I thought that was, and they, they're round. Um, and they, yeah. the, the tree itself very, looks like a, very much like a sawtooth oak uh, yeah. with that round acorn, which is so desirable. And they're non-native and they actually have a, an aggression problem. And they are also sought out by deer and turkey. There's actually a cultivar called gobbler, and that's uh, uh, Quercus acutissima gobbler. And that has a kind of cap that looks very much like Castanea too, 
on the acorn. So if you're if you're not quite sure and you're in an area, you know, you really have to have somebody who really knows the differences between the trees. And yeah, I think that's important too. Getting back to the American chestnut, you were talking about collecting and you go to these different sites and you notice that they seem to be found on rocky ridges. Is that correct? Yeah, they're often on like very shallow soil. Uh, some of the places that I find them, there's one place in particular, it is actually almost solid rock. It's it's just to the side of a stone quarry up on a ridge top. So it's a place you wouldn't even expect such a nut-producing tree to be growing. Um, but they're growing there happily. They might not be as big as some of the lower elevations. They seem to be almost dwarfed up on these ridge tops through solid stone. So the trees, they might be like 30, 40 feet tall, but the age is probably three times what a tree is. It's 75 feet tall in a slightly lower location with deeper soils. But they, they have no problem growing in very poor sites. Well, that's interesting because you don't really think of a nut tree to be uh, growing in poor soils. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a couple on the trees in particular. You can you can take a pocket knife and like a four inch knife, poke it in the soil next to the tree, and you hit a stone almost immediately. So there's almost no soil on some of these sites. It's absolutely amazing. What's amazing to me is you mentioned mycorrhizae earlier. You know how the struggles to get established on strip mining sites, but yeah. then when we hear about it growing, you know, in the cracks and crevices and rocky outcroppings. You know, I guess there's a little bit of mycorrhizae down there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's the fact that it's undisturbed. It's it's just naturally that rocky. It's had time to develop its own unique yeah. mycorrhizae ecosystem versus something completely destroyed and re-leveled out for a, right. for a planting site. And yeah. also some of those some of those strip mines also have may have chemicals too. Oh yeah, yeah. Or affecting affecting the chestnut, which is not hard to believe. No. We had someone on who goes and actually reclaims those sites, and uh, his last name is Drouet, and a uh, Cliff Drouet, and uh, he he was saying it's really satisfying. But there are certain trees that do really well on those sites, but other trees yeah. can't handle it. They just can't handle it. Well, and maybe it's a thing where you can circle back and improve those sites enough to accommodate right. uh, American right. chestnut. You know, in the future, maybe maybe it's closer than we think in terms of uh, Im- improving conditions. Yeah, I believe it will work. I've, I've seen things where they plant uh, black locusts on some of these strip job sites. That's right. one in particular that does really well. And you might be able to go back in through like 10 years after those are planted and companion plant some American chestnuts because there's some stuff actively happening in that soil by then. And they might right. do just fine in that solid rocky environments or disturbed soil columns. Yeah. yeah, they're known for their phytoremediation, the black locusts. Black locusts, yeah. 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 And, and if you travel across Pennsylvania, I know on the turnpike, when we used to go back and forth to Pittsburgh, you could actually see where the where the strip mines were, and it was all black locusts. And if you opened your windows yeah. in the in the summertime or when they were in bloom, it smelled so good because they yeah. have that real sweet smell. Um, and, the, and the wood doesn't rot either. So that's a, a real endearing quality of, of the black locust. Moving forward with your project, where do you see yourself like in 10 years with your, your work? You know, how do you see yourself and what do you hope to get from all of the work that you're putting into this? Well, I'm hoping by then that I'll have some of my trees that I have that are fairly good size now as we'll start producing. I mean, I'll have a better time to watch the reactions to the blight infections because most of the trees I have planted, they have some degree of blight infection. There's none that are free. 
almost none are free of blight infections. You can see the spores, you can see like some will react completely different than others, but you can always see there's a blight infection forming some kind of canker to some degree on all of the trees. So I'm hoping by five, 10 years from now, I'm going to start crossing certain ones that seem to have the better qualities in terms of how they're healing and callousing over these infections. I, I spread the seeds to a lot of local people, the seedlings, and have them plant them. And as long as I could come in and, and you know look at them and potentially cross my trees with them. So I'm hoping to expand the the range in which certain these these seedlings are around me so I can get a, a better pollen source, so I can, can have better chances of maybe seeing a, a really good reaction to this blight on some trees that is far better than others and continue to uh, select the best of each tree for, for experimenting and cross-pollinating to see what, what I can get in terms of a natural reaction compared to like a Chinese chestnut tree's reaction to the blight. So there's, there's a lot of stuff to still be done, but I'm definitely making some progress. And do you want to tell um, our listeners a little bit more about your nursery and all the other things that you grow there so that they have some idea it's not just chestnuts because you're doing work with all kinds of other things? Yeah, it, it depends on year on year to year what I have got my hands on and I'm able to work with. Um, I have in the past, I've grafted apple trees, a lot of heirloom trees. Um, I've actually driven around and I, I make fresh cider each year. So I'll go out and I'll collect scion off of some of the, the best wild growing trees that I see and bring them back. Hopefully someday I can kind of, once they produce some apples, see how they, what qualities they have in terms of like a cider apple, which is is actually becoming bigger than like the, the apples you see in the store. The cider industry is growing. So I have been um, out looking for apples that are exceptional qualities for cider or even good eating that grown locally. So you don't have to spray. A lot of these trees are, are not sprayed. And they have excellent quality apples on these trees. Um, I'm also working, I have some peaches I work with. It's a Siberian peach. It's a colder, hardy peach. And often the ones you see in like places like Lowe's and stuff like that, those are more of a southern peach. So I'm working with that. I do grow a lot of like oak species. There's a lot of people around here that like to plant this stuff for like their hunting properties and stuff. Um, that's another thing that kind of got me involved in the chestnut. Um, I do grow the Chinese chestnuts because a lot of people, that's all they know and they don't have to worry about that tree typically dying from blight. So I do sell those. And uh, the, the Chinese that I do grow and sell, they're from um, some pretty good nurseries like in Ohio. They're, they're good, good source seeds. So you'll get better quality than you'll typically get. In most, most places, they sell the Dunson. You brought that up. That's what is every food plot website in the world is going to have Dunson on there. And that's typically what you get at Walmart. But I'm finding the Dunstan now are not what they once were because they used to graft them. So you're getting what was the original Dunstan. Now you're getting third, fourth generation Chinese, and there's very limited control over the pollination of those. Um, and the quality is going down. So I, I do try to source the best Chinese chestnuts for that reason. I also dabble in like edible herbaceous stuff and berry bushes, like a lot of burdock, something like burdock. You wouldn't think of that as an edible, but there's huge uh, potential for the roots for those to be eaten. So I dabble with stuff like that as well. Um, but I, I post all that stuff on my Facebook page and hopefully I'll have a website here down the road so I can get some better exposure for some of that stuff and what I have available. But it, it varies year to year, but I, I, I don't really pick one thing other than chestnuts. I kind of... It always comes back to chestnuts. It always comes back <laughs> to chestnuts. I can't get away from that, but I, I do like to play with other stuff. And like you mentioned ginseng, that's something else. I got some of those I'm playing with. So I got some of those and I'm trying to see what trees they, they yeah. best grow with. <laughs> um, but I do have some pockets of those growing up on the property as well. So yeah. it's, but yeah, chestnuts is definitely my focus right now in terms of like time and energy put into stuff because it takes a lot to do that. So, well, couldn't ginseng be a potential northern 
uh, Pennsylvania crop. I mean, aren't you at basically the same latitude as the uh, Wisconsin farms? Uh, yeah, they actually, there's certain areas around here I, I can go if I go, I know if some I go hiking, there's some pretty heavy pockets of it. Um, it does well here. The problem is people will come in and they will dig every single one out. If they would come in and responsibly harvest this stuff, it would yeah. not be an issue and it would be, it'd be all over the place. Right. Because it grows really good here. I, it, I have no issues growing it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just like the leeks. People will come in and they will pick an entire patch of them until there's nothing left. So I try to keep these places on the down low and just kind of watch them observe. But yeah, the American ginseng does, does well here. Yeah. Now, do you grow any, do you grow any blueberries or any aronia or? Uh, I do have some high bush blueberries. Um, I have a row that isn't growing a problem. I, I fight the deer heavily here. Okay. So if I like the chestnuts, they are, they either have a wire cage about six, eight feet tall. Um, or they're inside an eight-foot-high fenced-in area to get them through the first couple of years before I plant them out. Because if I plant anything out, they mow it down. If it's a brand-new planting, they have to go and eat it. But if it's something growing, like I have better luck. Uh, I plant in areas where there's a lot of heavy brush to begin with, and I leave that for the first couple of years. They don't tend to bother those as much. But even those, I wire cage because they just come in and mow them down. So everything likes to eat chestnuts because if it's not the deer, you have the voles coming underground. They eat the entire root. You think you got a nice tree and you pick up a stick. So wow. I started protecting from those too. I, I bury uh, hardware cloth about six, eight inches down. And it rots away in a couple of years, uh, but that keeps the voles from eating the taproot because they love one, two-year chestnut taproot. So it would just eat the heck out oh, of them. Boy. Gone overnight. So that is yeah. a real stealth battle there. What a oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned the burgeoning cider industry. And do you have, I know a couple summers ago, we spent some time about 40 miles north of Ithaca, New York. And I just loved seeing apples that had rewilded themselves on the on the highways and stuff like yeah. that and oftentimes they were hard small little apples yeah um, which my understanding was you know a lot of the first american ciders that the pioneers were producing were just hard little apples that we would probably consider inedible so that i you you said you're collecting scion wood are these from more desirable eating apples Usually when I'm driving by, what catches my eye is just like if it's a unique looking apple, if it's like, a, you know, a funny color, because most of what you see in the store is red. But a lot of the ones that I see, they're kind of like a speckled, like yellowish red color. Yeah. And some, some of the best apples I've ever found, they are completely russeted. They look like a russet potato on the outside. They look terrible, oh but they have some of the best flavor of apples that I have found. It's not something you'd ever see in a store. Most people would just walk right by. Um, but some of the ugliest apples I find are some of the best tasting in terms of yeah. flavor, you know. Well, they are talking about how much fructose is in the apples today, nowadays as, as opposed to years ago, yeah. which is giving people problems. It's not the best thing to eat because you're getting all sugar. Yeah. They recommend apples that are heirloom type where they have low concentrations of sugar and more starch. And I would probably tend to agree with that. And you know, when they were talking about cider, you know, Johnny Appleseed was actually a real person. He would go ahead of time and it didn't make a difference what apple he grew. It was the fact that the people who came into the new areas of the West were able to have an apple tree so that they can harvest it for making cider. 
And we don't really think about that. It, you know, cider usually was a little bit hard, um, yeah. a little bit of alcohol content. And that was to make sure that you didn't get sick from the water that you were drinking. You know, things that we might not know, but and why things are the way they are now. It's the sugar, sugar, sugar. The more sugar, the, the better, I guess most people think. Yeah, and the more perfect. Yeah. Perfect red and round. Yeah. Well, and they are getting away from that because of the waste that's in the the agriculture industry right now where there's a, you know, if there's going to be a food shortage, why are we throwing away food that has a speckle on it? I know we used to buy the seconds when we used to come home from the shore. My father knew all the farmers from from Atlantic City all the way home and um, he we would stop and the guy would say, "Hey Ange, I've got a couple bushels of peaches for you. They they're the seconds and we'd get the seconds and we'd take them home and make jarred peaches. I mean, there was nothing wrong with them except for a little spot. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that uh, influenced me was my grandfather. Whenever, whenever I think of apples, he would go out and they're, they're just random apple trees growing. You pick whatever apples are off the ground. They had a bug or not. You press them for cider. They were perfectly fine. So I never thought about it as, as most people do is this perfectly red, sweet, crunchy apple. I just thought of something laying out in the field you picked and squeezed. So <laughs> yeah. If there's a worm or a bug in there, then it's a little added protein. Yeah, yeah, it's good for you. (laughs) The frustration for me when I find a cool apple out in some portion of rural New York or or Pennsylvania is there's no way I can identify it. You know, I know I've got something cool, but I, I, you can't, you know, you can't send that image of a heirloom apple out to Google and expect to get an answer, and then. Otherwise, having access to the the old farm almanacs and stuff like that that might have the, some of those colored illustrations. But uh, yeah, the ID piece is is difficult because I'd love to have like Arkansas Black or or Pippin those kinds of things. Actually, my hope next year is to go to a uh, heirloom apple festival in Vermont and really get a fix on seeing some of these apples firsthand. Yeah, that's where I'm kind of lucky because I know a lot of uh, older people and farmers, they have some of these varieties. I've actually got, that's where I've gotten oh. mine, cyanwood, and I planted them on here. So I have probably, oh, 50 varieties of apple trees growing here. Wow. And a lot of them are the older varieties like that. You know, some of them identification just because that person remembers what they planted 50, 70 years ago. Sure. That's some miracle, but uh, there's a lot, a lot of old apples on the farms around here. So that's some of the places I will look for stuff like that. You always you'll find an apple tree, and oftentimes you'll find a scraggly-looking Chinese chestnut tree growing on the same property because they just planted something for a food source. So, <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess a lot of those apples were uh, also keepers, right? The, the yeah, they are long keepers. Deep into yeah. the winter, yeah, yeah, and they get better the longer they ripen right off the tree. They won't taste good, but you you store it for four or five months sometimes, and the flavor is completely different. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I remember coming back from a conference in Asheville, North Carolina. And I did score, uh, I think I bought a half bushel of Arkansas Blacks and they did in fact last the winter out in yeah. the needed part of the, of the, off the kitchen. Well, the, the, that's what they were saying. Like April was always the death month because if you didn't have enough food to carry you over and the new crops weren't coming in, April was yeah. the when you would die. And that was when you ran out of food. And so it was called the death month. And that to me is is really fascinating. And you think about how, you know, preservation was really important when we talk about food and 
apples in particular, um, but even the uh, medlar apple, which is a medieval apple. I call it the medieval apple because it was grown in all the monasteries. But that's a really great one too for keeping. It holds up really well and used in cider as well for beverage. Ethan, did Eva tell me you're on a, a property that has been in the family for a hundred years? Yeah, the original deed actually goes back to 1890 when the family first acquired it. The house that's here, it's even older because the house was here when that deed was said and done. So it's probably about 1850s. So I got like a stone root cellar I keep stuff in, like the apples and stuff like that and my potatoes. Yeah. It's it's definitely a unique property. And there's not a lot of development nearby. I mean, other than mining back in the day, not, there's not a lot of development out in the area. So it kind of just, it's, it's a... It's kind of sets in its own time. It just does not seem to change. It's got certain qualities about it that are kind of unique. So do you have a sense of how the your earliest the earliest people in your family were making a living? Uh, most of those were working the coal mines and, and the lumber industry. Um, but they also did they have they did like, you know, uh gardening and stuff like that. They had cows. You know, they did a lot of stuff on the property themselves too. So the, right. it's it's a lot of terrain difference. Um the but most of the places I grow stuff on is on the lower part of the valley. It's probably about 1,400 feet in elevation. It goes clean up to about 18, 15, 1,900 at the top of the hill. Um, so there's a huge change in elevation. And in, in the uh, way the stuff grows from the top to the bottom is completely different. So that's mm. why I've experimented with growing these chestnuts. Is I can grow in a lot of unique, different growing environments on one property because there's such a vast difference in terrain. Yeah. So it, it's unique in that aspect of things. So we can assume that there was chestnuts on the family property. I can almost guarantee there was at some point in time because it. I, I hike nearby around here. You can find thousands and thousands of chestnut stump sprouts. Uh, most of them don't make it very large, um, but they're all over the place. From just just within like a mile of me, I can probably find thirty or forty stump sprouts that I know of. So okay, they were definitely definitely a predominant species in the area, especially in some of the poor ridge tops. So. Well, that's what they were saying, that 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 was what chestnut's endearing quality was, that it could sprout very easily from its root and that it could regrow even if it, the tree came down, you'd have a, a new sprout in the springtime. And when they logged those, they could come back in and re-log those within like 50 years. And it's a right. large, mature tree versus something that might take 100, 150 years to even get to the same size. So there's that quality to them, yes. Well, should we dare to ask you our our question we ask all our... We could ask him that, and let's not let him say American chestnut. Let's really no, it has to be something other than the American chestnut. What is your favorite tree or your favorite tree right at this moment? How about your favorite um, invasive? No, uh, no, <laughs> you don't ask him that. <laughs> Probably one of the ones that I'm really interested right now is I've been working with some uh, swamp white oaks. Ah. Um, I've been finding some that are rather uh, have bigger nuts than average on certain trees. So I've been collecting from those, and growing those out. So that's another tree that I've been working with recently. Quercus bicolor. For yes. those of you who might not know what swamp white oak is. Yeah, Quercus bicolor is an amazing tree. And they're using a lot of them here in the city of Philadelphia when they plant. And I know Hal's probably planted quite a number of them. I know I've planted quite a number of them too um, in our tree tenders and volunteer programming for planting trees. So it is a beautiful tree. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I had a guest on and I'm sorry I can't remember who it was that talked about uh who talked about looking for uh white oak 
acorns that were going to have a higher sugar content and larger in size. And I, I remember thinking, wow, that is a pretty cool idea. We have in Philly, the Korean grocery stores, or you know, if you eat at a Korean restaurant, they're going to serve you a jelly that is based on flour made from acorn. So next time you come to Philly, we need to make that happen. And I did buy the flour once. And then ultimately, I just, it was a little bit more than I could handle. And again, yeah, I'm, I'm half tempted to make that some year because I have a couple of trees that they seem to be a little bit less on the bitter side because I've bitten into them. One of them is a swamp white oak um, locally that I know of. And then there's also a, I think it's a, it's probably a bur oak hybrid. But these two that I found, there's two trees that seem to have less bitters to them. So one of these years, I'm going to try making some flour with them. But we'll, yeah. we'll see how that goes. <laughs> a lot of blanching. Yeah. I have a friend who's a forager, and what she does is she takes her acorns and sticks them in a big bag and sticks them in the back of her toilet tank. And every time they get flushed for about a week, then she pulls them out and then she washes them and then roasts them. And that's how you get get the tannins out of it before you make your flour. Yeah, that's I've seen similar methods of that. Um, another one I've seen is they, they'll, they'll crack them out and they'll kind of dry them a little bit. They'll put them in a food processor and then you kind of like steep it like through like a some kind of fine mesh a couple of times with hot water. And that I've seen that done before too. So but yeah, I'm definitely going to have to try that because I got plenty of oaks around, especially those two that I'm looking at. So, Well, we thank you very much for being on our podcast and sharing all the information that you have because it's really wonderful to share information when you're working for such a long time, like you've been working on the chestnuts and sharing that information so that other people know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I may never actually finish my project, but it's not stopping me from working with it from here forward. So I'll take it as far as I can. That's persistence. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think if we can reestablish American chestnut in North America, all the world's problems will fall into place. Afterward. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, take care. Thanks again, Ethan. Ethan, great to meet you and good luck with everything. I hope I get to meet you in person. Someday, hopefully. <laughs> yep. Take care. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.